Hey guys, this is Elliot. Welcome to another episode of Can I Kick It? Yes, you can. I know Shanae is probably going to be excited that I did that. But on today's episode, we have an extra episode for you, if you want to call it. Um, we have a good interview with one of the up-and-coming coaches in U.S. soccer, Mr. Rod Underwood. We pretty much just talked about his playing career, how was he coaching at Montego Bay United, um, his time at the Portland Timbers and Sacramento Republic FC, and how that shaped him, and what's next for his career. So, trust me, you're going to enjoy this podcast. As always, like, share, review, subscribe, you know, we're getting everything to everyone that listens to our first three episodes, and yeah, with that being said, kick back and enjoy the show. Today is Mr. Rod Underwood. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I can't complain. It's a good temperature today here in Richmond, weirdly enough. It's not super duper hot, so I can go outside with and not have to sweat off everything. Yeah, I'm up in the northwest, so you know, yesterday we were in the 80s, right? Uh, Today we'll be back down in the 70s. So, you know, we have about, our summer really doesn't even start to July 4th, probably, that's what everybody says up here, and it ends about uh, sometime in September, early October, it's over. Oh, man, y'all got it so easy up there. See, here in Virginia, it's hot, cold, hot, 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 deadly hot, cold. We go through like 12 months in Virginia, man, it's so weird. (laughs) But... One of the first questions I wanted to ask you is, how exactly did you fall in love with the game of soccer? And how did you get started in it? Well, you know, I, I tell people I don't believe in things by chance or things just sort of, hap- hap- just sort of happen, right? Um, the story is, you know, we I was born in New Orleans and then um, my dad got a job in Atlanta, so we moved up to Atlanta. And I don't know, I was six years old, seven years old, somewhere in that range. And my neighbor, his dad coached American football. And I was going to go play on their team. But at that time, at that age, you had to, you had to wear a certain, weigh a certain amount. And I didn't weigh enough to be on the team. So, oddly enough, within a few days, a week or so, I walk into school and there's a big sign up that says, let's play soccer. Who wants to play soccer? And I'm like, okay. And I don't even know what a soccer ball is at the time. Right? I don't think I've ever seen one. <laughs> um, so... I signed up because, you know, I'm at the age I want to play sports. And there was nobody around that wanted to. <laughs> there was nobody around that knew anything about soccer. So my mom and her friend were, you know, they became the coaches. And, you know, the rest is history because, I mean, as soon as I kicked the ball, I mean, I knew this is what I wanted to do. And, you know, be fair, quick history through life. I mean, I played all my life, uh, coached and played all my life. And, I think I ran in eighth grade, I ran track because where I went to school in Atlanta, there was no middle school. So high school started in eighth grade, so you went from eighth through twelfth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you played your, if you played soccer your eighth grade year, you couldn't play your senior year, so I opted not to play soccer in high school and ran track. And that's the only reason I ran track. Oh wow, that's I've never heard of that before. Yeah. That's unique. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Well, okay, so that's how you started with started loving the game of yeah. soccer, but what made you want to start coaching? Like, talk, talk to us about, like, your coaching experience and how it is. Because it, there's not a lot of black coaches in U.S. soccer, so how has your experience been, and how was your route to coaching? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I really got into coaching uh, when I was really, really young. Um, you know, we moved from the place where I started playing soccer to another part of Atlanta, uh, it's DeKalb County, right? So mm-hmm. you probably, with all the stuff going on in Atlanta now, you probably heard about DeKalb County. You've been on the TV and everything else. So um, so we moved to DeKalb County, and we, I started playing at a place called, I started playing at the YMCA, the Snap in the YMCA. And so that's when I really got into it and started, you know, you know, playing and playing and playing. And then, I don't know, I was in high school. I started doing summer camps at the YMCA, uh, and at the time they had like soccer so I would teach the soccer because again 
you know, at that time, I was the only one that really played soccer, right? So I would teach the kids soccer, would have a soccer hour or so. And then as I started to get older, the ones said, hey, why don't you do our camp schools? I'm still in high school, right? Wow. So I started coaching the camps. Uh, and so I started running the camps and the soccer, the soccer camps. And then, I don't know, I was about 16 or so, 17. Um, and I was refereeing, doing the summer camps. And... Um, and then uh, they needed a coach for like the new 10, new 12 team, something like that. So I jumped on and started coaching the team. I didn't know anything about coaching really besides just playing what my coaches did for me. So I tried to mimic that with 10 and 11 year olds. So that wasn't very smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and then, you know, just through it all, you know, through, uh, you know, getting out of, uh, getting out of high school, graduating high school. And I'm at the Furman University, so not too far from you guys, right? Yeah. Um, that, that was in the 80s. Um, and, um, you know, I would do the summer camp. I would, you know, if I was in summer school up there, I would do the summer camp with the coach. And if I was at home, I'd do the, I would work at soccer camps and all those various things. And um, after college, I got a chance to sign a pro contract in Albuquerque, New Mexico, for the New Mexico Chiles, which is obviously helped you know, lead the way for what you see now in New Mexico with New Mexico United and, and so forth. So, mm-hmm. um, so um, while I was playing, I started coaching uh, at a club there, a youth club, and uh, that was my real experience of being an official coach, really making money at coaching, right? It wasn't a lot of money, but it was, you know, there was an expectation now, right? I mean, some money so is started, better than no money. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> um and so through that process, I started doing my coaching license. And by the time I was about 26, I got my A license. Uh, by the time I was about, 20, about 26, yeah, I got my A license. And um, it was a very unique time that I was still playing. Um, and then I got the offer to be become the coach of the New Mexico Chiles in 19, 1995, yeah, 95, so I'm telling you how old I am. So, 95, I started coaching the team. Uh, the team did really well. We, uh, it was in the USL. It was in the, a, a rendition of what was the USL. Now it's, you know, it was the USISL. Now it's the USL. Um, so, we had a team, and at that time, you know, it was right about, you know, right after the 94 World Cup. Uh, USL was, was it because MLS had put off coming in a year, right? Because MLS didn't start from 96. And that first year, we had an unbelievable year. We made what was called the Sizzling Six or the Sizzling Eight. And just a little history story, I mean, Long Island was in it, and Chris Armas played on that team. Tony Miola was on that team. Oh, wow. A team from the, yeah, that was a team, there was a team from the Bay Area that had, uh, I think, Dominic Kinnear, who went on, and obviously still involved in the, in the league. And... Um, uh, as a coach, and then there was a lot of guys, Troy Diaco, I think, who, had played, who played in the league, and, you know, and then you go down, there was a team from Carolina Dynamo, which had a bunch of, uh, a bunch of players from North Carolina, Duke, that a whole triangle area, right? And there were some teams in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were from Albuquerque, we were just a ragback team from Albuquerque, New Mexico, but we were in the final, uh, and we had to actually beat um, a team called the El Paso Patriots for the Western for the Southwest Division, which oh. is now, uh, which is now, they led the way, obviously, for the El Paso locomotive. So you can see how some of these cities have had um, have a history of, of the game, even though we don't really know the history because soccer wasn't important. Yeah. Uh, and so that's really how I got started in coaching, and you know, the success, right, of coaching mm-hmm. led me to continue. And then, you know, I had a chance. You know, I was debating, right? Okay, do I? I was still young enough in 96 to give a shot at MLS or coaching, and I had established myself, and I felt like, you know, I would get a shot, you know, at MLS. And, you know, because the reality was I wasn't a superstar, right? I was a good player, but I wasn't, you know, the national team guys that were going to make the money. I was going to be the guy on the five, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a year, and, you know, I was making way more than that between doing youth coaching camps and coaching the pro team. So, and I had a family at the time, so it just wasn't financially viable try to continue and play and um, continue and play in MLS and MLS came around in 96 so I kept you know I kept coaching 
So one question I want to ask you that you, you brought up is that you got your A license at a pretty young age, right? Um, yeah. What is the experience like of going to get your A license? And like, is there any difference between getting your A license when you got it and, and today, like 2020? Oh, it's totally different, man. I mean, you would go like for, you would go for like a week, right? Get the, the license. You would basically wake up, eat breakfast on the field or in the classroom from, you know, early morning till late night and do that for, you know, five, six, seven days in a row. Wow. And you have to coach sessions, classroom sessions, do orals, examinations, chalkboard sessions, video. He didn't really do video sessions at the time. You know, <laughs> chalkboard, a dry erase, you know, dry erase marker on the board. You know, that was about it. It was closer to chalkboard than dry erase marker, man. And so, and so now, I mean, it's totally different. Now it's like it takes you, I think the class is six, eight months, right? Wow. Uh, and then, it, you know, I think ultimately it's close to a year by the time you're all said and done, you get your A license. Um, it's totally different because you go three, I think you go two or three different um visits to certain training centers and then they come and see you work in your area you have to write and you know sh- you write these you know basically in some cases it looks like a dissertation right it's so much so much work so much video so much which is a positive right um this is super expensive so it kind of um it kind of puts out a lot of potentially good coaches who are trying to work their trade and they don't have the money to pay to go to these courses, right? And, mm-hmm. and they can't take off time from work because of these courses. So it is good in that way that it's long, but it's also financially prohibitive too because some people just can't afford it even though they might be a good coach. Do you see that as more of like a roadblock in hindering the growth of like U.S. coaches and like oh, trying no to get more people? That, no, that, that's, that's an understatement. I mean, look, I'm like a, I'm like, but I always say this, right? I am a huge supporter of U.S. soccer, of the fundamental way that they want to help soccer, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a difference in, right, believing in their fundamental way that they want to help soccer, but putting processes in place that move, that move those fundamental ideas forward for the betterment of the overall population, not just a segment of the population. That's a huge difference. So... I have no qualms with the fundamental premise of of U.S. soccer. You might ask me, I'm a supporter of U.S. soccer, but I'm also understanding that we must put processes in place that allows anyone and everyone from any any social economic background to have a chance to have a pathway to to look to to go after their goal and their dream to be a coach. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true. <clears throat> well, also in your coaching career, you have a Great coach career for anyone that's interested. We'll put a link down below to like your web page and everything. But you also spent time in Montego Bay United, and how was that experience? And you also did you know some coaching in Concacaf. How how was all of that? You know. Well, yeah, I mean Montego Bay United was was very interesting. Um, you know, before I had worked in the Caribbean, before I had worked in Trinidad and Tobago in the early. Uh, not early, but middle 2000. Um, so I had some experience with uh, working in that environment. And so when the chance that came up, when the chance came up to go to Montego Bay, you know, I was, as a coach, right, in between opportunities, you know, you were, I was finishing up a contract in, in one place and, you know, looking for the next. And so that came up and the up team was there. And my goal was, you know, I was brought in to be technical director and head coach. And, you know, I was going to those countries because I'd been to places. I'd been to Africa and I'd been to, you know, Caribbean before. And, you know, I've seen what it's like to be in environments where it's, you know, a developing country or, or you know, a country without a lot of money. So, you know what you're getting into. Uh, well, you have to know what you're getting into or you'll be, <laughs> you won't, you know, it'll be, it'll be more difficult than it always going to be. But you know, I had some quality players, man. I had, um, some players that have played in the Gold Cup for the national team of Jamaica, and um, you know we had you know we had some players that leave our club that go on and play in the USL uh, and have shots in uh, in MLS. You know, so we had some quality players, 
But I came in at a time, you know, I came in at a time and just come off two championships, too, mm-hmm. you know, back-to-back, right? Yeah. So that's always asking for trouble for a new coach coming in, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> you already won two championships, right? Yes. Uh, and the team was on the aging side, so I was asked by the ownership to come in and, and get younger, right? And so we tried to get younger, and um, we did get younger. We had some decent players. But the CONCACAF experience was very good, you know, and to be an American, not coaching a, a U.S.-based team, and be have the experience of coaching in CONCACAF was, was, was fantastic for me because the way it worked in the Caribbean is that you have two groups in the Caribbean, and um, we got a chance to host one group, and the winner of the group um, goes on and plays the winner of the other group, and that winner of the group goes into what is now what you see today where you have a chance at playing a Central American team or playing an MLS team or playing a Mexican team. Uh, but we finished second in the group, I believe, so we didn't, get, we didn't have that opportunity. Um, but it was a great experience because we got a chance to host, got a chance to host, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you can imagine that pressure, right? We host and we don't qualify, man. I was, <laughs> I wasn't like very much, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but that's part of the game, right? That's all part of the game. Uh, but yeah, I mean, great experience to, to, to coach against other Caribbean teams and quality teams, and some of those. Some of those teams had players going in USL and so forth. So, um, you know, fantastic. I mean, I wouldn't change that for anything to say. I, you know, you know, I don't, I don't know if there is, there is it, you know, but uh, to be one of the only Americans to coach a, uh, a non-MLS, a non-US based team in CONCACAF qualifying, this is, is something special for me. So yeah, that that has to be a high honor. Is there any memorable players or moments that stick out to you from your time in Montego Bay United? You know, players, I mean, we had some, you know, we had some good players. We had this guy, Wayne Gordon. Um, he's now currently, um, he's either, I don't care anymore, he's in, an OK, he's in an OKC, Tulsa, or uh, San Antonio. He's been in all those places, so I don't know, but he was a, he was a player that was up and coming and really had some, you know, had some opportunities for national team, um, you know, and, you know, so that was one of the players, you know, memorable experiences in Jamaica, you know, the, the country is crazy for soccer, crazy for football. I mean, you know, we were in Montego Bay, which is out of, you know, which is, you know, uh, in the western part of the country. And so whenever you went to Kingston, you know, the, when we went to Kingston, that was interesting, man, because the passion, right? It's, you know, you would be, you know, you go to Kingston. That's most of it. We were only two clubs in the West, and that was us in a club called Reno, uh, which is a town in Reno, a town in, um, in Jamaica. And everybody else was pretty much in the Kingston or heading to Kingston area. So, you know, you would, there were, they were, they were clubs that were a mile, two miles apart in, in Kingston. Um, and so it was very, very, very territorial. So whenever we came to uh, whenever we came to Kingston, you know, we were we were the outsiders, and um, you know, the experience, the passion of the crowd, uh, you know, all those things were just absolutely unbelievable. We went to uh, I can't remember the club now. It was it was a playoff game and. Um, we went and you know basically we needed to have a uh, we needed to have we needed to have bodyguards with us to get out of the stadium if we won the game. Put it that way. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that 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 is intense. <laughs> that is yeah, intense. Man. So um, we go down, we go down a goal, and the we went down a goal, and then um, we come back and we go one one, and we have a we have a free kick probably about. Uh, you know, under five minutes to go in the game, and maybe just skimmed the post. We would have gone two one up to win the game. We tied one one, but it was a great game. It was a fun game, and that was just like a really exciting experience. I mean, even with all the stuff, you had to be careful about off the field to get out of there, you know, right away. But um, that's part of that. But that's part of living in countries like that when you're talking about football. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, also in your coaching career, you came back to the United States, um, kind of where you live at now, the Northwest, and you spent yeah. time at the Portland Timbers and Sacramento Republic teams, respectively, in MLS and USL. Um, can you talk to us about like 
what made you want to move back to the U.S. and coach here? And what's some of the differences between coaching in USL and MLS, respectively? Well, you know, Portland is Portland is a unique situation for me because I actually went to Portland in two thousand. I was the assistant coach in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, and was it eight somewhere in that range, seven or eight? Uh, yeah, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, as the assistant coach under who's under Gavin Wilkinson, who now is the president of the Portland Timbers, um, president of soccer for the Portland Timbers. So he brought me in then. Uh, I spent two years there, uh, and that was great. I mean, we were one of the few teams, right, um, that um, we were one of the few teams that really drew a crowd, and we really grew through the best crowds when we played Seattle or we played Vancouver, that same Northwest rivalry, right, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so that was that was unbelievable. We were really laying the groundwork for what you see today in these um, – and the, and the MLS with these, you know, all the other clubs really important. It's one of the most important clubs in my mind. People might might doubt me, but Portland's one of the most important clubs in U.S. soccer uh, because of what they've done with the, what they've done with their fan base, what they've done with their community support, what they've done simply. I mean, to sell out every single uh, MLS game in the history, right? Mm-hmm. They sold out every every single MLS game, so that's important. That's important for soccer in America. It's super important, um, you know. And so I was involved in everything with with the Portland Timbers from the first team to the academy to the reserve team to the U twenty three team. Uh, I was part of the you know helping you know one of the founding guys to help you know get the academy moving forward. You know and. Um, that's always nice, and you know, the academy's still growing and up and going. And, um, and I still, I mean, Portland's always a special place, and I said that's what I consider a lifelong friend that will be there in the academy and, uh, and, and the city of Portland. And, you know, Gavin Wilkinson, Mary Paul, and I have nothing but the utmost respect for those guys, and, you know, it's fantastic. But to be in the MLS side is just is really special. Uh, and then Sacramento. Sacramento was. Look, to be fair, I'll be quite honest. I didn't really even want to go to Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't even want to go. You know, it came about. Um, I was in Portland, and Portland and Sacramento made the um, made the agreement that Portland would, you know, Sacramento would be the feeder team for for Portland. So, in all of that process, I went down to Sacramento as the assistant coach. And I didn't know Precky at all. Uh, me and Precky had a few conversations, and we sort of hit it off, and then we started working together. And now, today, Precky's one of my best friends and one of the guys I, would, I, I go to for a lot of advice just in, you know, in soccer, you know. And, um, but going down there, right, you know, it, it did feel a lot like a lot like what it was when I first went to Portland. I mean, the, the city was on fire for Sacramento. And I, I mean, I loved my time. And so after saying all that, not really wanting to go, I loved my time uh, in in Sacramento. And some of the stories was like, you know, you know, I, I remember when the when the um, when the schedule first came out, and we were going to play LA Galaxy two and Chivas, right? Which Chivas USA was still in the in the USL in the MLS, and so they had a reserve team. And I'm thinking to myself, right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough way to open the season, man. You know, with the new team, a lot of new guys, a lot of guys with not a lot of pedigree. You know, so I'm thinking, okay, let's just try to hang on, right? And and it was we, we went down the hill on. I think we got I don't forget we might have got two wins, man, or we got a split or something. I can't remember. Um, great experience from the perspective that when we finally got a chance to go home, right? Everyone in the office was saying, hey, you know. You're gonna get ten thousand. I'm like, man, I've been doing this a long time. Tell me you're gonna get ten thousand. Okay, right? Ten thousand fans the first game. I'll believe when I see it, you know. And um, and then you know, we might get fifteen. The tickets are going like crazy. I'm like fifteen thousand fans, man. I'm thinking to myself, Portland. We would do that when we got play when we play Seattle, right? And that was like once or twice a year. You gotta get your first game, new team. Um, okay, that's like okay, and that's it. Think we're gonna sell out and think the stadium held like twenty or twenty-two thousand. Like, okay, man. So about, I would say, 
I usually like, I like to get the game really early. So I was about three or four hours for game time. I'm driving up, right? And people are already, man, parading and walking to the game at like three to four hours for the game. I couldn't even get into the gate practically. Park <laughs> my car. And I'm like, okay, I guess we might sell this thing out. You know, we're in the we're in the locker room. We hear the noise and we we freaking walk out, man. Stadium is packed. It's sold out. Twenty twenty two thousand fans, man. First game, and I'm like, okay, they were right, man. And then the season was just like the season is just like unbelievable. I mean, one of the most memorable seasons in all of my career, and I've been doing this for, for playing or coaching for forty five years, man. And you know, we we go and we're playing and we're playing. And, you know, we have ups and downs in the new team. And we, just, we go on one road trip, and I think we'll win both games. That was like the turning point. And we just go on and we go on and winning, we're winning. We're not really losing. And, uh, you know, we're feeling like, okay, we're in the playoffs. For a while, look like we might come first, and I think, but we ultimately came second or, second or third or so. So we're thinking, okay, um, we might have to go on the road. But it worked out. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't have to go on the road, and um, we were thinking, okay, we're playing LA Galaxy in the semifinals, I think it was, um, and we're down, man. We're down 2-0 with like 20 minutes to go in the game, right? And this guy, Rodrigo Lopez, who's now, he went on and played for Celaya in Mexico, and played for another club in Mexico, now he just re-signed with Sacramento this year, um, and he just takes over the game, man. He scores a hat-trick. And that final 20 minutes of the game, and we win 3 2. Oh, wow. To go to the final. <laughs> to go to the final. But we're thinking, okay, we're going to have to go play Orlando City. That's right before they um, get this their last year in USL for the glory MLS. Okay, we got to go. And freaking Harrisburg beats them. And, that sounds um, like Harrisburg. <laughs> <laughs> Harrisburg beats them. And so now we get the host because we're, we're the highest remaining seed in the league, right? And. We go on and we win the championship 2-0 against Harrisburg. And, you know, we get a chance to host the trophy in our first year in, in USL. And that was just like, I mean, what's so nice about that is, right, fast forward to today, you know, all of us are, pretty much all of us are gone from from Sacramento now because it's, been, you know, the nature of professional sports. We're all staying in contact. Some of these guys, Preston and some of the guys, Chris Melanap, who's assistant coach at Reno, some of my best friends today, right? And players, you know, we're, you know, it's not just like staying in contact because we're on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, it's like literally staying in contact, right, mm-hmm. today, and that's, it, it was just a special, special time, and, um, you know, then I helped start the, uh, the Sacramento Academy, right, and I always like to tell sort of the highlights, and uh, first tryout, we had freaking 700 players show up to tryout wow. for the Academy. Yeah. And, you're pretty, so, and that year for Sacramento Republic, that was in 2014, correct? 14, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, little fun fact. Um, we have another podcast, River City 93, and for the Richmond Kickers. And we actually broke down that game between Sacramento Republic and uh, Richmond Kickers. And it was kind of like, where okay. can you bring it up now? But, yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, you, I think Richmond beat us. I think we lost to Richmond. Yeah. We it lost to Ty. And it's weird because there's so many players in that game that went on to go play in the MLS like now. Like I think the Atlanta United game had two or three players from that Richmond Kickers and Sacramento game that were starting opening night for MLS in twenty twenty. Oh wow, that's awesome, man. Yeah, so that's that's a unique story. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead and finish your point, my fault. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's cool, no. That's cool, man. But yeah, man, you know, those those two experience Portland and I mean Here's the thing I, I like to look at, right? I look at, you know, I've had a chance to work, you know, one of the most important clubs in, in um, with the Timbers and also, you know, with the Republic, um, one of the up-and-coming clubs, you know, and, you know, they've been accepted in the MLS. And, um, and so hopefully, you know, I, I just I just say, you know, I played my part, right, in helping them get where they are today. And not like I had a huge part, but... I played my part, whatever piece that was to help, and I'm glad I was able to do that. Wow, that, that's amazing. Um, another thing in your career that stuck out to me that I was looking at is that you spent time as an international scout. How is like how did you become an international scout? And how was that experience? And 
I'm also going to ask this. Was there any uh, famous players that you helped scout in the process? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the international scout was very unique because uh, a friend of mine who I worked with, Alex Palmer, he was a Dutch-American, um, and he got bright. Mm-hmm. But it isn't like the majority that they could see a pathway forward to have a chance to get into the game at the highest level possible. So... I have two more questions I want to ask you. Well, maybe three. Um, <laughs> one, like you mentioned to, alluded to, being a black coach in the state of U.S. soccer, how is that experience? Because, I mean, we haven't, we started to see a couple of more starting to come up. Um, here in Richmond, we had David Bulow. Then in Hartford, you have a black coach there, FC Tulsa, um, Colorado Rapids, and also um, uh, Real Monarchs. But, how is that experience? Is it a very tight-knit group? Is it kind of like that thing where you see another black hair coach and you're like, oh my gosh, hey, what's up, man? Or is it, you know, how is it, you know, being in that fraternity? Well, I'll, 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 I'll say it like this, and this is, this is personal uh, job as the general manager of Canberra. Um, Canberra at the time was in the second division. They've gone up and down between the between the NWDA and, and um and, you know, between the Eredivisie and the second division, they, you know, they've kind of fluctuated that because it's not a big club, right? You know, mm-hmm. we, Hard, Ajax, uh, PFV, you know, those are the, those are the clubs that are, that, that really are the big clubs in, in, the, in Dutch football. Um, but yeah, my job was to, uh, to set up uh, a network of people to, um, to scout uh, in America. Uh, and my job was to get a network of fine players that we that way. And Colin, it's really it's really difficult to get foreign players in because when I worked in you know things that, when I worked there, you, you know a foreign player had to make a minimum amount, and you had to have access to get uh, an EU passport. If not, you had to go first, you know, go to another country where they didn't really require that and get some experience, and then you could come back to that club. So it was a it was not an easy process, right? Um, and, you know, my job was to offer up um, those kind of players and hopefully get those players in. And it was really, it was really interesting because, you know, I got a chance to communicate with Alex on a regular basis and regular, and recommend players and, um, no real famous players, but, you know, my job was to create, um, you know, create. Uh, and, and evaluate players and provide the most information I could about players to to um, to the club and then the club would then do their due diligence and um, and really um, and then really identify those players. But what really has really changed with that, what really helped in that international scouting option was now I you know, I do some consulting and I scout now for clubs all over the world. Like, you know, I, I I, I do some work in Egypt. I do some work in Ghana. Um, so I help, and you know, and then I I'm working on some things where potentially working in for Asian players. And I'm not an agent because I'm a coach. That's what I do. I coach. But because of that international scout, so many people reach out to me that now I can say, hey, yeah, this player is a MLS player, USL player. I think he can go to Holland and get a shot. I think he can go to some country and get a shot, or I think he needs to go here first to go there. And so, and then I help clubs, you know, smaller clubs around the world because of the scout. I help them set up their technical plans, their methodology, their game models, all those things. So that international scouting has opened up so many other doors um, to the game. So those kind of things that I do, and obviously <laughs> with the pandemic, I haven't gone anywhere around the world. Or, yeah, help those clubs and do those clubs to those things. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm stuck. I was actually right when the, when when international travel closed. I was on my way to Egypt, and you know, luckily I got on the plane yet, so I was I got grounded real quick. So, oh man, that's unfortunate to hear. So, what do you, what's what's next for your career? Are you do you want to get back into being the head coach and running a program day in day out, or? Do you like the feel of the international being like a scout and just be able to go this place and that place? Like, what, what's next for Rod Underwood? I mean, what's next for me, man, is, is yeah, I want to be a head coach. I mean, uh, look, I mean, uh, once I, you know, I when I, when 
when Gavin Wilkinson came to me back in, this was 2013, you know, you know it started like in, when he first came to me in like late summer, or just, yeah, August, August of, August of, of uh, 2013 uh, came to me and he said, hey, you know, uh, you know, Rod, I trust you, Merritt trusts you, Caleb Porter, you know, they all, they all, you know, they all respect you and they really want you to go to Sacramento. And I'm just sitting in the car in the parking lot and getting ready to head down to training. And I said, no, I don't want to go. That's exactly what I said. And, uh, and he says, okay, think about it. So I thought about it and I called him back and I said, I'll go. But, you know, I said, hey, look, I, I'm going because I want to do first team football. I want to be involved in football and I want to be back at a head coach and so that's my goal I want to I want to lead a team I enjoy the the technical side developing and all that but the pressure of the day today leading a club and having to prove yourself every single time you walk on the field that's what drives me that every time I walk on the field every training session has to be its best every time I communicate with a player I got to be at my best Every time I walk into the field, there's only one option, that's to win the game. That's the pressure that I thrive on as a player and as a coach and in life, really, right? Uh, and that's really what I enjoy. And, you know, I definitely want to get back into it and, and lead a team and lead a club and, and, and do some very important things and, and be an influencer, right? Because, look, as we opened up and we said, hey, there's only there's very few black coaches, right? And I've been doing this a long time. I'm, to, I'm like any other coach. I want to win everything. I want to coach the best players. I want to coach at the highest level. But I want to make sure that I influence and impact and create a pathway for that next generation, who that next generation of coaches who doesn't look like the going right. This is not like, you know, I've heard this or someone said this. This is personal feeling and just what I have sensed over the years, right? Mm-hmm. So... And let me take a step back. Actually, when I became the when I became the academy director for Sacramento, one of the first things I said to the media when I got involved was that I want our players to look like our city, so to be diverse. I'm saying I'm going to go out and find a Russian player, a black player, a Mexican player just because they are. No, the best of the best thing to be there. It's like I want my coaching staff to be a reflection of our of our of our city. So therefore, what I want is what I want to see is at the elite level and at every level, if if our players and our coaches reflect the diversity in our cities across the country, it should make it it should make its way up to the top, the top level, reflect the diversity of our city, of our country, of all of our cities in our country. That's what I think. But the, the dynamic that it, it is, it's like, you know, you, you, you're happy when a black coach gets the job. But then you also, my personal feeling is like, because it's so hard to get the job, you're happy. And then on the same token, it's like, okay, I hope he does well. Because if he doesn't, I doubt very seriously if the club's going to hire two black coaches in a row. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's very unfortunate. This, that's, that's my personal feeling. That's not, I don't, I can't say that's true, and I'm just saying that's my personal feeling, how I feel. Mm, yeah. Not that I have documented proof that says anything that's true or not. Yeah, it, I think we all kind of feel that feeling of, I kind of equated, equated to like how the NFL, um, I think it was around like the early 2010s or when they were trying to hire more minority coaches, and Tony Dungy kind of brought up the point of how you know, it's kind of on every black coach once they get hired to do really well. And if they do really well, then, you know, it kind of shows like, hey, we can perform well in this area. But, you know, it's kind of like real life. If they do poorly, do we get another opportunity? Do we have to wait another three, four years down the road to get this another shot? Um, yeah. And to put that in a context, right, to put that in a context, in that context, right, I look at, I, and again, I'm talking personal experience, how I feel, not how what I know and someone said or how I've been treated. I'm saying how I feel, right? Um, and what I tell everybody is, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, if someone tells me how they feel, I can never discount anyone's feelings. That's, that's just disrespectful, right? So 
I might not believe your feelings, but I'm saying I can never, I can never say I doubt your feelings. Um, I might not agree with your feelings. Best way to put it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I look at my own personal career, going as far as I did in '95, my first year, and I, and I can document it. Then in like in '96, you know, we didn't make the playoffs, and then '97 we won the USL championship, right? And then in 98, we were one of the last teams to be promoted into, you know, post-promotion relegation after winning, you know, the D3 championship in the USL, uh, or the USISL, whatever it was called at the time. We got promoted to the A League, and we struggled because we didn't have any money, right? And then from, and then in, that was 97, and then, no, excuse me, 97 won 98, um, 98. We didn't do well in the in the A League, but we were you know we were a no budget team, right? And we had no players. And the, halfway through the season, the, the club ran out of money, and they they dropped the best players and they kept the cheapest players. So we played out the year. I mean, I actually had to sign myself, and I played the last eight games. I had played in I had played competitive football in almost two years, <laughs> you know. So just to make up the numbers, right? That was the situation in '98, uh, and then in '99. Uh, and then in 99, um, I went to the South County Shamrocks, which um, we made the playoffs, and we we played Roanoke, Roanoke, Virginia, in the first in the first in the first round. We got beat. Um, I think we got beat one nil, two one. But you know, it was a fair game. It was it was. I mean, we you know, I, I, I have no complaints about that. And then from basically 2000 to 2000 and September in 2007. I was out of the pro game. I was just young. Couldn't get a job for the life of me, man. After coming off the championship and really from 95 to 2000 in five years, uh, winning a championship uh, and making the playoffs three out of those five years. And the times when I didn't make the playoffs was, um, you know, in 98 when, you know, we were out of money and, you know, I was begging players just to play, right? Mm-hmm. I was begging players just not to talk to the media because the media was coming to ask us questions about why are the players gone. I'm just saying, you guys just, you know, support the team. This is what I'm saying in, in training, right, and behind the scenes, that just keep it quiet and we'll finish it off, blah, 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 blah. And that's what I was, that's what I was saying, you know. Um, and then, so for seven years, man, I was out of a job. I didn't have a, I was out of a job. I was just doing new stuff, and I couldn't get a job. And I was sending my, my, my resume to everybody, right? <laughs> and I was like, nervous. I'm never going to get back in. And that's why, like, Gavin Wilkinson, people can say whatever they want to say about Gavin Wilkinson, but I will always have the utmost respect because he took a chance on me in 2007, and he got me back in the game, got me back in the pro game. And I'm so thankful, beyond thankful, that he, he did that. He took a chance on me, and I really appreciate him. And, in his family, because, you know, my family and his family are good friends even to this day. Um, so, and then, you know, and now, you know, after after uh, uh, 2014, I went to Jamaica, and then um, after Jamaica, um, I've had some interviews, right, but I haven't gotten a job, right? So, since really 2000, I was in Jamaica until 2017, maybe, 17, 18, somewhere like that. Um, I'm going to that next year. But don't get me wrong, I've had some interviews, right? Uh, but I haven't gotten the jobs. It's gotten more competitive. I'm all about that. But I just feel like personally, look, I'm a guy that says, I don't believe that we, that we, anything we are deserve to be handed to you to earn everything. But I also will say that people with less resumes and experience and wins as a player and as a coach, are getting jobs and, and I'm not. Mm. So I'm, I'm I'm not insinuating anything. I'm just speaking fact. Mm. You know, I'm just speaking fact. That's all I'm saying is, you know, uh, I'm just simply speaking fact that um, I feel like my per- I'm, I'm using I feel right because I, I'm saying my feelings and you can agree with my feelings or not. Anybody listening to this can agree with my feelings or not. I feel like. My resume should give me a chance to be on a staff somewhere. If it's academy level MLS, a pro club, USL MLS, I believe my resume is good enough to be there. Now, if I didn't believe that, no one else is going to believe that. So that's not an arrogant thing. 
because I'm not an arrogant guy to ask anybody that knows me. I'm a humble guy, or I, I try to be. Uh, maybe not my wife might say differently. <laughs> <laughs> I think our wives will always disagree with us on how we view ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, I, I, I think I deserve, I, so I said not deserve, I think my resume speaks for itself to have an opportunity to prove that I'm able to lead a team to be successful mm. at some level at the pro game in the United States. Mm. Okay. So, one last question. Um, do you have any advice for anyone that's looking to get into the game of coaching or um, looking to get scouted? Any advice for them? You know, um, if we talk about from the player perspective, you know, look, as a player, right? A player, I like to tell players, but you never know who's watching, right? You never know who's watching. You never know who's watching your training. You never know who's watching if you're doing an interview. You never know who's watching how you're interacting with other players. You never know who's watching. So always try to be at your best because the way the world is, Chances are far and few between to be at the elite. And don't get me wrong, the elite level is special. Only the cream of the crop should be at the elite level. So always be at your best. As a coach, your team is your canvas. Because I say this, right? I watch a game, I get asked all the time, why is that team doing this? Why is that team, why is that team not playing well? Look, I can say all I can tell you is what I see with my naked eye because I did it with my naked eye. I don't know behind the scenes if at the pro level a guy has been struggling at home and his wife is going to him and his wife is going through a divorce or he's been up all night because he's got a, a three-month-old and the baby doesn't sleep. I don't know that. All I can say is based on what I see, this team is not performing well. This team is performing well. I don't know the backstory to what I'm seeing, but what I can say is the reality is our, as a coach, every team, if you're coaching a youth team, if you're coaching a pro team, coaching a college team, coaching an amateur team, and a youth, an adult team, whatever, your team is your canvas. People need to be able to see your identity as a coach, and people need to be able to see how you want to play, your playing style. They, even the person that has an untrained eye could say, hmm, that team looks good. That team looks good because they like to play the ball on the ground. That team looks good because that. So you have to make sure that your preparation, your daily preparation, right? Mm-hmm. And just like me now, and if you want to talk about the USL, I know the USL inside now. You want to talk about MLS? I know the MLS inside and out. Because it's my job to be prepared when someone calls me and says, hey, we want to interview this job. I should be able to talk about X number of players in that team. Like they say, this is what I think about the club. This is what I view the club. I should be able to say, not, be, not, not because I'm guessing, because I've done my homework, I've studied, and I'm prepared. So be prepared for every opportunity that comes. Wow. I think that's great advice. Um, one last thing. I, want to ask you. I know I've been asking you a lot of questions, and you've been great at like, answering all of them. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up today's show? I know I've had you for almost an hour, but is there anything else you want to add before uh, we wrap up? You know, I, I would say this, right? What if they, you know, because we, we would be, I would personally be remiss if I not speak about the culture of our country today, right? I would, I would be, it would be unfair to not, to leave this opportunity to say something about our country. Look, I am, I grew up in the South, right? I grew up in the South. And to be fair and to be honest, I've, I've had some experiences that have not been, that have been based on race, that have not been good. But I've also been blessed that because I was a good soccer player, because I went to a good school and got an education, I didn't necessarily receive all of the harshness that a, that a lot of black men have received. So I got a pass sometimes. You know, but I do have experiences, right? I do have experiences. But what I will say is, is that we as a culture, we as a, a black community, right? Today, we need to use this opportunity across that we need equality. And when I say equality, I'm talking about the black community. I'm talking about the Hispanic community. I'm talking about the social social disadvantage. I'm talking about the economic dis- disadvantage. My wife's a social worker, and I see 
I see as things that she has to deal with on a daily basis of the abuse of every race, black, white, Hispanic, Russian, the inequality that's across the board. And we cannot stop fighting for everybody, but this is the chance for the black community to be seen and given the opportunity. But we can't waste it because, the, because violence and people start to say, oh, they're about violence. That's what we always thought about them, that, that phrase, them. we got to show them that they're educated, that we have a way to do it in the right way, and that we get into public office, and that we get into education, and that we become leaders in business, not just an account executive, but we become president, we become owner. We have to be, and we must, we must, we must be in decision-making positions to change this. Mm -hmm. If we don't, we'll be fighting the same battle 20 years from now. Most definitely, I agree with that. Um, I thank you so much for coming on the show today, Rod. Um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, man. That's great, man. And you know what's, what's been nice about this situation, too, is you guys. <laughs> it's nice, you know, it, it, it's nice to come in and see other black people that like soccer, man. It's, it, you know what I mean? It's been crazy, man, because it's like I grew up, and I was the only black kid or the only black coach and the only black fan, and now it's like people are coming out of the woodwork. It's like it's so awesome to see that, right? Mm -hmm. It's so awesome to see that, and that's real important. No, man. Well, it's a whole community of us, man, but we just want to say um, – Thank you one more time for coming on the show for us, man. Where can everyone reach out to you if they want to get in contact with you? Yeah, man, you can reach me on Twitter at Cut Inside, right? Cut Inside is like on the field, right? Mm -hmm. Cut Inside shoots the ball, right? I just make it easy. Cut Inside at Hotmail. That's Twitter. I have my web website at RodUnderwood.com. Those are places where you can uh, you can reach me. And, you know, I'm always here to help and have a conversation with anybody. All right, man. Um, yeah, man, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you so much for reaching out to us again. Like, 